Revelation chapter 8, it's the seven trumpet judgments. And if you recall, Jesus in Matthew's gospel said about this time period that we're talking about, obviously we are in the great tribulation period in, in the material that we're covering in the Bible. Now physically, you and I are still in the church age because we're still here. <laughs> but once the church is removed in the rapture, there's going to be, uh, we don't know exactly when it's going to be. There may be a small interval of time before this leader, this world leader is going to make a pact or a treaty with Israel to allow them to build their temple. We don't know how long that's going to be after the rapture, but the next thing on the agenda, on God's agenda, is the great tribulation period. And that's what we're getting into. That's what we've been in ever since we got to chapter 6, where we started with the sealed judgments. Last week we looked at the um, Revelation chapter 7, which is really a parenthetical chapter, they call it. It's a chapter between 6 and, and 8. And uh, because we looked at the first six seals in Revelation chapter 6, and then there's this pause, this parentheses, if you will. And God gives us information about the time period that we're dealing with to kind of give, get an understanding of the bigger picture uh, as things move along. And so uh, we looked at last week the, the 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe being sealed to go through the tribulation to be a witness to the world. And we also looked at these tribulation saints, uh, more saints that will be martyred uh, in the tribulation period from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And, and this is uh, just, uh, these are the Gentiles that will be martyred or killed during the time of the great tribulation. And if you recall, Jesus said in Matthew 24, as he was speaking of this very time that we're looking at right now, he said this, he said, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And the elect that he's talking about are those during the tribulation period. It will be possible for a person, an individual, to be saved during the tribulation period. But let me tell you, it's going to be very difficult. The Bible says that there's going to be a strong delusion once the church is removed. The light, if you will, is going to be removed. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's going to be completely gone. No, he is omnipresent. But the witness of the church and the light within the church is going to be gone, and it's going to be very different, and the delusion is going to be much, much greater. And so it's easy for you and I now to receive Christ, but in that time, yet future to us, it is going to be much harder, and it will cost you your life. And if you do, by some grace of God, survive those first six or seven trumpets, or those, 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 those first, you know, um, the, the, that devastation that God is going to pour out on the earth, if you do survive it, you're going to be very fortunate. You're going to be very fortunate. Millions of people are going to die during that time. It is going to be a time of great tribulation. It's going to be a period of God's judgment upon the world, not man's judgment. We've seen what man can do. We've seen the, you know, the Vietnam War, the Korean War. We've seen World War I and World War II. We've seen the Gulf War. We've seen these things. We've seen what man can do. We've seen Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We've seen what the atom bomb can do. We've seen all of these things, but what's coming is so, so grievous and so horrible that Jesus had to make the statement that if he didn't return at the end of it, nobody would survive. That's pretty serious. There's a lot of people on the earth, folks. A lot of people. So that is the period we are looking at. And the period uh, this morning is specifically chapter 8. And we looked at, two weeks ago, the first six seals that were opened. And this morning, we're going to see this seventh seal that's going to be opened, which you recall is really a, uh, a seal. If you look at, on the graphic on the, on the screen here, the, the seventh seal there at the top, when that is opened, it's going to open up, in a sense, like an accordion, Another wave of judgments of God, and they are the trumpet judgments. And when we get to the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11, that in turn is going to open up like an accordion for another seven 
instances of God's wrath called the bowl or the vile judgments, depending on if you have a new King James or a King James. So there's a lot coming upon the earth. Let's look at it. Let's get right into chapter 8. It says, when he, speaking of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, when he opened this seventh seal on this seven-sealed scroll, remember, this is the seventh seal. We're getting into the trumpets this morning. We're going to look at four of them. But this last seal is significant. And it is very obvious based on how it is given to us here in chapter 1. When he, Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. For about an hour. And this is significant because there has never been silence in heaven as far as we know. Silence in heaven is not normal. Silence in heaven is very unusual because even the angelic realm and those who are there, they they constantly give worship and praise to God. It is a never-ending thing, and no one gets tired of it. Their whole perspective has changed. They're actually designed, they're built to worship. They, they, they love him. They, they, they see the great God that he is. And there has never been silence in heaven. There are myriads of angels and celestial beings doing that very thing. We saw this in chapters 4 and 5 when we saw a glimpse of heaven and the different worship of these different groups that are going to be in heaven. The elders, the, the angels, the four living creatures, all giving praise and honor to God. And this pause that we have here, this half hour of time. See, most people think that when we, when we are in heaven, that time will cease. No, time doesn't really cease. Our time is different, but there's still forward motion. There's still time. Wouldn't you agree with me? I, I used to believe that, that somehow we would be, eternity is, is very different. But it doesn't mean that there's not time. Because things happen, and things happen, and when they do happen, they have to happen in time. Does that make sense? So time is going to go on, but it's going to be measured very differently. So for a half an hour, there's going to be silence in heaven. Those on earth will be completely unaware of it. But in heaven, it will be deafening. The silence will be deafening. Have you ever experienced silence being deafening? Like when you're standing in front of 100 people or thousands of people, and you say something, and all of a sudden they stop laughing? And you're like... Where's that hook that can pull me off the stage, right? But the silence is deafening. Verse 2, and it says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So this is a very specific group of people. In fact, this is called, uh, the, the definite article is in here, the seven angels, a very specific group of angels with a specific task. And they were given a job to do. Each one of them is to blow a trumpet, and that trumpet would unleash a judgment of God. And when we look at Uh, trumpets in the Bible, they were given, trumpets were sounded for many different reasons. Sounded at times of public assembly, which we're going to look at in just a moment, to direct soldiers in war. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have those fancy cameras or uh, fancy radios from Harris. They didn't have any of those things. They had to communicate through trumpet blasts, and one trumpet blast meant one thing, two trumpet blasts meant another thing, three meant something different, one long and one short meant something different, and everybody knew what those meant, and that's how they communicated. So it was meant to direct soldiers in war. It's also, they were used in the Old Testament to signal important events on the calendar, and we will see that. But the first mention we hear of trumpets is in Exodus chapter 19. In fact, if you would, go with me there. Because they've always been the sound to bring attention to something or herald the presence of someone important. Look with me at Exodus 19. This is the very first mention of a trumpet. The children of Israel had just come out of, Is, uh, out of Egypt. And they were in the desert for three months. And remember, God told them that he would meet them at the, at the mountain and he would give them the commandments, the law. And it says in verse 10 of Exodus 19, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain nor touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. 
Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through with an arrow, whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. Now skip down to verse 16. It says, then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings. And we're going to see these kinds of things happening in heaven as the tribulation unfolds. We're going to see thunderings, lightnings, voices. There's going to be a solemnity to this. It's going to be a somber moment, something that God does not like. In fact, the Bible says that judgment is the strange work of God. It's not something he enjoys. He would much rather bless he would much rather bless. That's more of in line with his character. But because he is a God of love, and because he is a God of perfection, he must judge wickedness. And the decision is ours. We have to make the decision. I can't make that decision for you. Hopefully you've all made that decision. Hopefully you all online have made that decision to serve Jesus Christ. Your only hope. He is the only hope. He is the only hope. But I digress. Let's get back here. And it says, In Moses, he brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely covered in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Notice, and when the blast of the trumpet sounded, this is the first instance we see of it, long, and it became louder and louder, Moses spoke and answered him by voice. And so we see this trumpet bringing them, the assembly, to attention. And so we see this kind of thing. And God here, in this instance here this morning in chapter 8 he's bringing our attention to something no sound has been made now there's a trumpet sound there's warning there's something coming that's much bigger than what happened previously we see this also in the new testament we see the trumpets in fact uh, in we call these two verses up on the screen the the rapture verses if you don't know these by heart memorize the the references by heart and remember them because you can show people where these things are these are the rapture verses, and each one of these are speaking of the same event, the rapture of the church, and it speaks of a trumpet. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 51, Paul says to the Corinthians, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, is this trumpet that he's referring to? Is it the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet that we're getting into? It is not, and I'll explain that shortly. But the New Testament talks about a trumpet. It's a, to bring attention to something. And isn't it worthy to be brought to attention, the rapture of the church? I mean, I don't really know if that's really a significant event or not. I mean, what do you think? Is it worth, you know, toot? Is it worth heralding? Is it, is it, is it a big deal? Oh, let me tell you something. The church has been waiting for it since the beginning the beginning of the church, they've been longing for it. You know who's been longing for it longer than we have? Jesus Christ. Because he knows the expression on our face. Can you imagine? i got to be careful here. I'm going to lose it. The joy on his face. To see your faith complete. To see all those tears, all those struggles on earth. And for you to see him and know that you'll never cease seeing his face forevermore. You'll never cease being in his presence forevermore. You will always be in his presence. I don't know about you folks, but I would trade everything in for that. Everything. Lord, you take everything. Because the alternative, think of the alternative here. Eternity separated from God and hell. That's a very real place. It wasn't even created for man. It was created for the devil and his angels. But God will not send you there. You will choose to go there by your decision that you make. God doesn't send you there. Anybody who says, well, I can't believe a God who would send me to hell. Say, buddy, God doesn't send you. You choose. Think of how empowered you are. <laughs> you can choose Christ today, and you'll never see that place. But if you continue in your rebellion, in your obstinate heart, you will be sent to hell, and it'll be your fault. And you will stand before God 
at the great white throne and he will show you all these things. And to me, that'd be the greatest remorseful time in all of history is to stand before God at the white throne judgment and to realize and have him show you all the opportunities. He could do that in an instant. He could show you all the opportunities that you've been afforded all of your life, all the times that he's intervened in your life and you said, no thanks, I've got it, Lord, I can take it from here. All the times when you were crying after a loved one had passed away, where are you, God? I'm angry with you, God, and never reaching out to him, but instead getting more angry and and, and pushing him off even more. You will stand before him and there'll be no excuse for you at that point. But does that delight God? He does not delight in the death of the wicked. It is not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance, the word that nobody likes, but yet it's the word that means to turn around and go the other direction. If you're living a life of sin and you're living a life that you know is not pleasing to God, you better turn today because he loves you. Turn today. Do not wait. Because if you don't, you don't know what tomorrow brings. Our life is but a vapor. Pastor Kevin thought his mom would be lasting at least a few weeks, maybe a couple months, and the Lord took her. Those four or five, I forget whether there were four or five young ladies from Fairport back in 2014, 2015, they, were, they graduated from high school and they were on their way to Cuca Lake, I think it was. They were in a car accident and they died, all, all of them. They had no idea. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. But you've got this moment. Please make that moment count. Give your heart to Christ. Do not wait any longer. You cannot afford to wait any longer. And so, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the other one where the trumpet is mentioned. And Paul here is referencing the same exact moment in time, the rapture. What does he say? Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Notice that. Underline trumpet of God. It's important. Trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. We will be harpazoed. We will be raptured. There's where our rapture word comes from. In Latin, it's rapio. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Boy, I think that's a great comfort. Now look with me over in, um, you know right now we're looking at the first trumpets. Um, In fact, in verse 7 of this chapter we're looking at, we're going to be talking about the first trumpet. But I want you to turn with me over to chapter 11 really quick and look at verse 15. When we get to this, we'll we'll review this again because it's worth reviewing. And here is why. There are three different ways that the church... um, There are three different viewpoints in the church. There are some who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. There are some who believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. And there are others who believe in a post-tribulation rapture. It's really easy to understand these because a pre-trib is a group of people like us, because the Bible is very clear about this, we will be be, um, raptured before the tribulation, hence the term pre-tribulation rapture. There are some who believe that there's going to be a mid-tribulation rapture, that we're not going to be raptured in the beginning before all hell breaks loose on the earth. But right in the middle, somehow we're going to be raptured at the middle point. And people believe, some believe, and, 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 and they're believers, and we love them. And there's, you know, they'll figure it out when, when, they, when they leave this earth with the rest of us that they were wrong. But when you look at um, chapter 15 of Revelation chapter 11, some believe that this seventh trumpet is actually the time when the church will be raptured, which is for those who hold to that mid-tribulation view. And there are others who believe that the church will be raptured after the tribulation period, which is even worse. Does God drag his bride through the mud and judge her? Does he? Is there plenty of scripture to point? There's so much in the scripture that points to a pre-trib rapture view than any other. 
but some hold to this view. But I, um, you know what, we'll, um, I mean, just let me just quickly go through this with you. If you look at Revelation chapter 11, I just want to point a couple things out to you. The mid-tribulation rapture cannot be, and here are the reasons why. The tribulation in Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 is blown by the seventh angel. Notice, it says, then the, in verse 15, then the seventh angel sounded and there were voices in heaven. So an angel is sounding this trumpet. But what did it tell us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? It says that the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And so this is clearly of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we just looked at, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the dead in Christ are raised as a reward, not as in a judgment. Look at uh, the 18th verse of chapter 11 in Revelation there. It says, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged. Does that sound like, a, does that sound like the church? No, it doesn't. It's not the church. The church is raised as a reward. It's the redemption of their bodies. It is the earnest of their salvation. Or the, the redemption, actually. The earnest is the Spirit of God in us. And thirdly, in the trumpet blast, in this Revelation 11, verse 15, there are many voices in heaven being heard, but there is only one voice heard in First Thessalonians chapter 4. So do you understand that they're completely different things? So there is no mid-trib, as far as I believe, based on what I've shown you. And we'll look at this again when we get to Revelation 11. I just wanted to plant that seed now, because as we go forward, you're going to hear about that. And so we will look more about that when we get there. Does that make any sense? Maybe I've been spending too much time in study that I look out and I'm not sure... <laughs> So there are three different views, the pre-trib, the mid-trib, and the post-trib. We believe in the pre-trib. You know, many have believed that for those reasons. There, there are probably others too. And this is important. It's important. Because 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, For God has not appointed us, and Paul was including himself, a member of the church, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever you've looked over the scriptures and you've seen that God has always removed his faithful remnant before he brought judgment, didn't that happen in Sodom and Gomorrah? Even though Lot was not the perfect uh, specimen of a Christian, God removed him and his family, some of his family anyway. He wanted to remove them all. The type is all throughout the Bible that God removes his remnant. Wasn't Enoch the seventh from Adam? Wasn't he raptured? Didn't the Bible say that he, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God translated him? He took him when? Before the flood judgment came in Genesis chapter 7. But Noah and his family representing Israel, representing the Jews, going, went through the tribulation. Noah and his family were in that boat for hundred or however, however many days. The, the, it rained for 120 days. They were preserved through it. Preserved through the judgment, just like those 144,000 we talked about last week. The picture is very clear. But for any other viewpoint, a mid-trib or a post-trib view, there's very little, very little evidence for that. And so I'll believe that. I believe that. Let's look at verse 3 now. It says, Then another angel, notice, separate from these seven, eight, seven angels, another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Some people believe that this angel could be Jesus Christ, but it, I don't believe it is because Jesus is the one who's opening the scroll. Now, Jesus comes at the very end when all of these judgments have completed. Then he shows up on the white horse. And then he comes down to earth with all of us coming on white horses following him. Back to the earth after the tribulation period. So this is another angel, another angel. 
and the prayers of the saints. Isn't that what, what it said in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8? Let me read it to you. It says, When he had taken the scroll, when Jesus took the, the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so your prayers, every prayer that you've ever prayed has been stored. It's been, God, he's got it in escrow, in a sense. He, he holds those things. They're precious to him because they are things that when you were at the end of yourself, you cried out to him. And do you think that he takes that lightly? I don't think he does at all. And it's evidenced by the fact that he holds those things. And one day he's going to offer it all upon an altar and it's going to come up before him. It's going to be worship. And he is going to answer your prayers. And many of your prayers have been answered. It is either a yes, no, or not yet. Those are the answers that we get in prayer. He either answers it. Sometimes he doesn't answer when we want. Sometimes it's a week. Sometimes it's two weeks. Sometimes it's a month. Sometimes it's three years. Sometimes, and this has happened to me, 10 years, 15 years goes by, and he answers a prayer that you prayed back a long time ago that you haven't even prayed in 15 years. He answers that prayer. Hmm. And he does. And sometimes it's just, I'm going to answer that, but not yet. It's not a yes or a no yet. You've got to wait. And boy, there's something in the patience of that that just tries us, doesn't it? In a world of everything, everything is fast, where everything is fast, the food is fast, the technology is fast. We have become accustomed to fast, and we don't tolerate anything where you have to wait. We move on. In fact, web, those who study the web, the, the, the internet, they tell people who are creating internet or web pages that you need to make sure your connection is set so that when people click on a link, it doesn't take very long. Because within a certain number of seconds, if that link doesn't come up, people move on. That's the way it is. I found myself doing it myself. But we need patience, and we have to wait upon the Lord they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings of eagles, right? They will run and not be weary, and they'll run and not be faint. I butchered that verse, but you get the idea. So this prayer that is offered before the throne of God so precious, and it says, verse 4, in the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, they ascended before God from the angel's hand. From the angel's hand. And then the angel, he took the censer. Now notice what happens here. This is really critical here because something happens here that's never happened before. He filled it with fire, the censer. He filled it with fire from the altar and he threw it to the earth. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. Up until this point, these judgments that have been happening on the earth have been peace being taken away from the earth, pestilences and things of this nature. But now we get to this seventh judgment and this first uh, trumpet. And he is going to throw fire from off the altar to heaven. It's going to be a direct wrath of God. It's going to be very directed. It's going to be clinical. It's going to be surgical. It's going to be precision-guided wrath upon a world that has rejected Christ. And could this be, could this be the very prayer that was prayed by those tribulation saints that we read about in chapter 6, verse 10? It says, they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And God is saying, Hang on. Remember what he told them? Just wait. It's coming. When I unloose this seventh seal, it's going to happen. Be patient. My judgment is coming. Verse 6, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets, they prepared themselves to sound. And the first angel sounded, notice, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees on the entire planet were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. All of it. All the green grass, a third of the trees. And this trumpet judgment are distinct, again, from the judgments that we saw before because the source of it is coming directly from the throne 
of God. And believe me, it gets worse and worse and worse. That's why this is such a hard chapter. That's why this whole entire book, at least from chapters 6 through 18, are the most difficult chapters in the Bible. And thank God, you and I, if you're a believer in Christ, you'll never see or experience these things. And how we ought to let this affect us such that we will go out and share and warn people. People need to be warned. Nobody wants to warn anybody anymore. Well, if it works good for you, no, baloney. No, this is serious stuff. This is not something that we can just uh, faintly ignore anymore. It's coming like a freight train. This is coming. We need to warn people and tell them. And don't worry if they get scared. I was scared. Fear brought me to the Lord. (laughs) Somebody smile. Just smile with me for a minute here. It is. Fear brought me to the Lord, and maybe it did you too. But the changes that this judgment's going to bring will bring ecological and atmospheric disruption that has never occurred before. In addition to the judgment itself, the, the, the ramifications, the ripple effects of it are going to be devastating if time were to go on even further. It's going to get really weird. It's going to get really weird. If you remember, in fact, this reminds me of the plagues of Egypt. Remember those plagues that God brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians? They were against the things that the Egyptians put their trust in. And most of these things were gods that they worshipped. And the Nile is a perfect example. There were many gods that they worshipped in relationship to the Nile River. And so God, too, will bring judgment upon a world for the things, for the inhabitants of the earth at that time, the things that they have invested in, the things that they've trusted in, other than God, they're going to be, those things are going to come to ashes and cinder. In Exodus chapter 9, go there with me. Exodus 9, verse 13, let me read it to you. This is the seventh plague in Egypt, and you'll find that it's very similar to what we're reading now. It says, the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. I'll say so. Wow. Now, verse 15, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, Then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As as yet you exalt yourself against my people, and that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to come down, such as not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, send now, and gather your livestock, and all that you have in the field, for the hail will come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. If you don't listen to what I'm saying. Isn't that one? You see the grace, even in God's judgment? This is what's happening, and by the way, you better go out in your field because tomorrow it's coming. You better get all your men and your cattle, get them out from underneath all that because it's coming. And he who feared, verse 20, the word of the Lord came among the servants of Pharaoh, made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the heaven that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field. Does this sound familiar? We're seeing it now at the end. Similar judgment. God's going to bring hail mingled with blood. Notice what it says in verse 23. Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt, and so there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. So very heavy that there was none like it in all of the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck through the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. The hail struck struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. You know what this is? This is precision-guided judgment. Goshen was here, and the rest of Egypt is here, and all of these judgments fell on all, this, all the Egyptians. But the land of Goshen, it was beautiful. Nothing was happening. Is God specific? Is he able to be precise? You know, I love to bring up that, uh, that 
historical event of David and Goliath. I love the fact that when David took that sling and he was running, I want to see a replay of that in heaven. Lord, show it to me again. Just loop it. Just loop it. And, and there's David. He's got that leather sling and that pouch. And he's got that rock. And he's running toward Goliath, this monstrous, vomitous mass. And he runs. And he's <laughs> running with that sling. And he lets that rock go. And I'm convinced that even if David missed, the Lord would go, he'd grab that rock and hit him right on the forehead. Precision. God is in control. To me, that's encouraging to know that God is in control. Certainly God does not delight in the death of the wicked, and neither should we. But notice, a third of the trees and all the grass burned. It will significantly disrupt the ecology and the atmosphere. Notice in verse 8, the second trumpet sounded, and something like a great mountain burned with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. Notice, like a mountain. So here John is trying to describe to us, using a simile, to, it's like this. And in fact, in, in Bible interpretation, it's really important that you take things literally unless there is some kind of device being used that makes it obvious that it's not that, that it's not literal. Take the Bible literally, except when it tells you through the choice of words or, or, or phrases where you know it's speaking of something real or something that is an image or it's like something. This is one of those things. Was it indeed a mountain that came? No, it was like a mountain. It was probably some kind of meteor, some kind of heavenly body, some kind of chunk of planet that broke off that God is going to break off and send it right down like Babe Ruth to the earth. Or whoever the famous pitcher is. Babe Ruth wasn't a picture. Sorry about that. But whoever, who's a good pitcher? It doesn't matter. But anyway, see, it's coming. It's coming to the earth. It's like a mountain. And this rock of some kind is going to fall from heaven. We don't know what it is, but let me tell you this. The impact on the water would certainly flood the coastlines near the part of the world where it comes down. And if it's that big, it's going to disrupt things really big. I remember in, um, in 2011, we were coming back from Israel on a trip, and uh, Pastor Jeff and myself and Bill Galton and Scott Galton, his son, and the whole group, we were there in the Philadelphia airport. We just flew in from Tel Aviv, and it was on March 11th, 2011. And as we pulled into the gate and we got out and we had to sit to wait for our next plane to go to Rochester, we were seeing the, 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 the tsunami in, in Japan unfold in real time. We were seeing video on the screen of the waves just pouring over the... It was just incredible. Never seen anything like it. And that was just the earth doing like this, underneath the water, the epicenter, the, the, the plates. It kind of jolts a little bit, and all that water is displaced, and it continues to roll and roll and roll. And it says that there were waves estimated to be as high as 38 meters, the height of a 12-story building. An estimated 20,000 people were dead instantly or missing, and close to 50,000 people were forced to evacuate. And this all happened as that tsunami hit Japan in the Indonesia, in that area of the world. And do you understand that this magnitude of whatever this rock is that God's going to throw to the, 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 in the oceans, it is going to be devastating. You think the tsunami that we saw in 2011 was significant? It's going to make it look like it didn't even happen. It is interesting to me that the Jewish form of capital punishment is stoning. You ever notice that? Whenever they were to be killed for certain crimes in the Old Testament, they wouldn't, they wouldn't hang them. They would stone them. And it's almost like God, because he, he, he showed them all of this. He, he gave them these laws, capital punishment. If a man kills a man in cold blood, he is to be killed. If a man sleeps with his neighbor's wife, both of them are to be killed. If a man is caught in a homosexual relationship, both of them should be killed. They shall be stoned. And what does God do in this last time? And when he pours out his wrath on the world, he stones it. He stones it. Not with boulders this big, but boulders that are huge, that he can precision guide from heaven. 
And he's going to, this rock, this mountain, whatever this is, it's going to be huge. It's going to land right in the ocean. It's going to affect all the oceans, the seven seas, the Arctic, the North Atlantic, South Atlantic, the North Pacific, the South Pacific, the Indian Ocean, the Southern Oceans. All of these saltwater bodies on the earth are going to be affected. They are going to be affected. In fact, on Exodus chapter 7, we see another judgment that God brought upon Egypt. And let me just read it to you. It's in Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 18. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning, and when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him, and the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now you would not hear thus says the Lord God boy whenever somebody says thus says the Lord God especially someone like Moses you'd better be listening (laughs) think of how many things they've already gone through you think by after the third time I'd be like okay I believe you but isn't it amazing how hard our hearts can be we can go through one thing after another and God will forewarn us every single time nah it's, it's just a coincidence are you kidding me no coincidences He says, but thus says the Lord God, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood, and the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. And then in verse 9, back in our text this morning, It says that a third, as a result of this mountain, this meteor, this whatever it is, as a result of it hitting the oceans, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. I should think so. I mean, just think about the chemical makeup, whatever this thing is. Not not, not to mention just the percussion of this hitting the earth and this mass, such large as it is. It might even tilt the earth in a different axis. It's going to be so big, and it's going to hit so hard. Who knows what it's capable of doing, but the tsunami that comes? Guess what? Anybody docked along any, any, anywhere around the coastlines, anywhere in that area of the world, it's all going bye-bye. Does that make sense? It does. Henry Morris said this. He said, These constitute the lowest and the most basic components of many of the world's food chains. He's speaking of the, the sea life. So their destruction must produce a domino effect on many higher forms of life. And that's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, there was already famine in some of the first seals that we were looking at. But now as a result of this thing coming, it's going to further kill the animals in the sea. No more sushi, folks. No more fish fries on Friday nights. It's going to be significant. Verse 10, and then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and fell on a third of the rivers. Notice the theme, a third. This judgment would fall on the freshwater sources of the earth, from the mountains and the underground springs. We already saw him touching the things in the seas and the oceans. Now he's going after the freshwater sources. And why? Is it because God hates Is it because God, you know, as we look at this, you can think to yourself, boy, God is just a mean old man upstairs. He's been called that. Is he really mean? No, he's serious about judgment, but you know what? His love way outbounds his his anger, his wrath. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a pretty good deal. When I didn't even know him, when I didn't even care to know him, he died for me. I don't know about you, but that's a love that is... Total benevolence. That is true agape love. Self-sacrificing love when the object of that love, there's no way they could deserve it. Did I deserve it when God intervened in my life? I had no idea. I didn't even know what it was. I didn't know anything. I didn't even want it. But he invaded my life and made me aware of his presence and I crumbled like an egg and cried convulsively as a result of my sin and my brokenness. So does God hate? No, quite the opposite. He loves, but he must judge. And it says, verse 11, the name of the star that comes down, that's like a torch. And again, this this is another rock of some kind. And it has a name, Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And men died from the water because it was made bitter. You can't drink it. If you're going to be here in the tribulation period, you might want to store up on bottled water. 
Maybe even if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you might want to start hoarding bottled water in silos all across the world and start building it now because when this happens, you're going to be a very wealthy man. But I wouldn't recommend it because <laughs> you're, you're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to enjoy it. This judgment would cause the fresh water sources to be scarce, contaminated. In fact, this word wormwood in this is simply means bitterness. It's, it's a, it causes bitterness. We see it in the Old Testament. And um, wormwood was a type of hemlock. It was a poisonous European plant of the parsley family. And it smelled horrible. And it was also as a sedative and a poisonous concoction that people would use. And it just shows how bitter this is going to be. How bitter it's going to be. C.S. Lewis, you remember the uh, British author, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And Screwtape was a, a senior demon who had a young protege that he was schooling, that he was, um, it was an apprentice to him, and his nephew's name was Wormwood. Wormwood. It's where C.S. Lewis gets the, the term wormwood from. It's all bitterness. God wants your life to be a blessing. He wants you to be a sweet saver. And isn't it, isn't, there, isn't it true that when you walk with Christ and you enjoy his presence, that there is a sweetness about your life? You've never known before. And if you know him now, you know what I'm talking about. Before Christ, my life was filled with Sin and so many wrong things and giving my life to Christ, all of a sudden it's become sweeter and sweeter every, every passing year. Because he's unraveling more of his goodness, more of his grace. Is he doing the same with you? He is. And you may be going through difficulties, but you know what? There's something about going through difficulties. It refines us, doesn't it? Just like gold is refined in the fire, so often in the Bible, we don't understand that, how God can love so greatly and allow his people to go through such difficulties. Why would he allow Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to go through what they went through? Why would he allow the Apostle Paul to go through the beatings, the shipwrecks, and ultimately being beheaded by Nero? Why would he allow that? Paul would say, you know what? These are just minor things. That's what he said. As he was awaiting the guillotine, he said, this is, these are minor afflictions. Minor afflictions. And the weight of all of those difficulties are working in me a great treasure, like gold being refined in the fire. There's really no way around it, is there? I wish there was a pill I could take that would bring me to maturity, that would bring me into refinement that God wants to bring. It'd be so nice to just pop a pill. But unfortunately, we have to go through things. We're going through something right now. This whole COVID thing is unique to the world. Unique to us. We've never been here before. Is God refining? He's refining us. He's making us better. As a result of all this, I think we're all going to come out better. The world, like, remember what Joseph said to his brothers? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God loves to take things that are difficult and he likes to turn them around and say, there was no other way I could show my glory in you but by what I've done and allowed in your life because I love you. And you know, when it really comes down to it, we'll stand before him and we'll receive a crown for letting God do that and we'll gladly take that crown and lay it at his feet again. Because <laughs> we'll realize... What an awesome thing he did. And we will sense the, magni the magnificence of what he's done in our life, so much so that we'd be like, the le very least I could do, Lord. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck. So now notice that God is not just hitting the earth. He didn't just hit the earth. He hit the oceans. And now the heavens are going to be struck themselves. You see the pattern here? The earth, the seas, and now the heavens themselves are going to be struck. A third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Just as 
The, just as the third of the earth was struck, so was a third of the heavens, so was a third of the oceans, and God is going to do that. And we see this prophesied over and over again in the Old Testament. We see it in the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been. Joel speaks of this day of the Lord that's coming that we're looking at as we speak here, as we look in Revelation. And these things in the heavens that we all take for granted, God will even diminish those. We look up at the sun and we look up at the stars at night and the moon and we're so thankful for them. And how many times have you spent a night uh, camping or out on a boat somewhere or somewhere remotely and you've sat on a blanket and you've had that wonderful peaceful moment where you've just laid on your back and you've looked up at the stars and there's no towns anywhere nearby for tens of miles and all you see is the stars. We see that when we go to the Adirondacks. We see those kinds of things. And all of these things at that time in history after the church was removed, those things will be diminished those things that we have taken for granted, perhaps. The people on the earth at that time will have taken it for granted. Notice verse 13, and we'll end here. And I looked, and I heard an angel. Heard an angel flying through the heavens, the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So we get to this fourth trumpet. And there's three more that are coming, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh. And the angel says that the fifth one is a woe, the sixth one is a woe, and the seventh one is a woe. And we see these very clearly laid out in Scripture for us. In Revelation 9, you can, go, you can look at these up and take a look at them yourselves as we progress further into Revelation next week. But in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, it tells us that this is the first woe. In fact, the very last verse of, of chapter 9, verse 12, it says, One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Metatauta, after these things. So one woe is past. And what is that woe in chapter 9? It was a demonic horde coming from the abyss that looked like scorpions of some kind. We, we've never seen anything like this before. But God is going to unleash from the abuso some kind of creature that's going to be able to sting people on the earth for, and they're going to torment men for five months. This, we've never experienced anything like this. This is literally a movie that you might watch. You think all that stuff is, uh, you know, the imagination of some of those guys, they get a lot of this from the Bible. They think, oh, it's just a bunch of science fiction. This will never happen. But hey, people buy it. They go to the movie and they'll watch it. Hey, some of that stuff is going to happen. In fact, some of the stuff you see in science fiction is going to be pale in comparison to what's coming. The horror of it and the helplessness and the hopelessness of many, I can't imagine it. In Revelation chapter 9, verse 13, From 13 down through chapter 11, verse 14 is another woe. Because at the end of uh, chapter 11, verse 14, or 13, or, or 14, it says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So, what happened between Revelation 9 and Revelation 11? We see a couple of things. We see the Euphrates horsemen and the hosts that are going to these kings of the east that are going to be coming. We're going to see also the plagues of the two witnesses that will judge the earth. These two witnesses that we read about in Revelation chapter 11. These two things, at the very least, are going to be considered the second woe. And then the third woe, we will see, will be in Revelation 12. And why is Revelation 12 the third woe? Because it speaks of the devil being cast out of heaven and his angels. 
they will no longer be able to have access to heaven. Right now, the devil can access heaven. Did you know that? He can go right before the throne of God. And he said, have you considered my servant Job? Remember that in, in, in Job chapter 2, in chapter 1? Have you considered my servant Job? That's shocking to me that the devil is actually able to approach God in his throne. But there's coming a time when that access will be denied. They will no longer be able to inhabit and, 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 and be in the heavens at all. He's the prince of the power of the air, Satan, is he not? Isn't that what the Bible says? He's the prince of the power of the air. Is it any wonder that he's got the radio stations? Is it any wonder that he's got the media? The prince of the power of the air? The radio waves? He's got influence, sway over the whole world right now. But these three woes, and then finally the third woe is the very thing that we see in Revelation chapter 12. And what does it say in Revelation 12, verse 12? An easy way to remember it. It says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Notice, woe to the inhabitants of the earth now, for the devil has and the and the sea. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. He knows his doom is coming. And see, that's something that we don't always understand about the devil. He knows more information than you and I do, than we do. But he is so bent on taking away anything that could possibly be valuable to God. That is an evil that you can't imagine. An evil that knows that his end is coming and his only recourse then is to take what God loves. And what does God love? What is the value to God of all the things on the earth that he's created? You and I. He wants to destroy you. Why has he been doing it all these years? Why has he been hooking you on pornography? Why has he been hooking you on drugs and alcohol? Why has he been hooking you on stealing and thieving and lying and living a life of complete disobedience. Why has the devil infiltrated your life like that? Why? Because he wants to take the one thing away from God, the only thing he can. See, he knows his doom is certain, but if he's going to go down, he's going to take as many of us as he can. And God says, well, try as you might. And you're going to get some Satan, and that's good enough for him. Isn't that sick? That's how sick he is. He doesn't care. His doom is sure. He's read the book of Revelation. He knows what's coming. He doesn't know how it's all going to happen. He's not omniscient like God is. He knows his end is coming, and so he wants to take everyone that he can away. And he doesn't know how many people God's going to allow. Because God doesn't intervene in the heart of a man. He does, actually, but he gives many opportunities to come to him. But God will not force you to receive him but you have the ability to reject him, and that's good enough for Satan because he's like, you know what, I don't care. I just want as many as possible because I'm taking them away from you. That's his heart. Does that sound ugly? I remember hearing of a, a story one time, and this is kind of like the same kind of evil. And I believe this is a true story. A man was cheating on his wife with a prostitute. And the man woke up the morning afterwards from this fling that he had and written on lipstick on the window or on the mirror, welcome to the wonderful world of AIDS. The woman that he had the fling with had AIDS. And now he's infected. And that was many, 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 many years ago when there was actually no hope for people who got it. You just slowly wasted away till you died. Death sentence. That's the kind of evil that Satan has, and even worse. But aren't you glad <laughs> for Jesus? And yet these woes are coming. And so in the next few weeks, we'll be looking at, we've looked at these first four trumpets. Next week, we'll look at the fifth, and then the sixth. And then we'll look at these uh, parenthetical chapters in 10, down through 11, verse 14. We'll look at those before we get to the seventh trumpet. The heat is turning up, isn't it? The heat is going to be turning up in this time period that we're talking about. Each successive wave is getting worse and worse, harder and harder and harder. And there'll be many who come to Christ who will 
You know, like when you had, when you played, when you wrestled with your brother, like I did when I was young, and he would twist my arm, and I go, "Uncle, uncle, uncle," and then he would stop. He actually didn't stop; he kept twisting. And I love him too. But God is going to keep ratcheting these things up, and yet there'll be people who will shake their fist at him, at the Lord, and say they will still hate him. Calamity does that to us, doesn't it? It either produces within us a heart of surrender and brokenness, or it creates bitterness and anger and vehemence. Isn't it true? And there are times that I feel that emotion. There are times when I feel vehement and I feel, you know, like that. And there are other times when God breaks me and I'm just like, Lord, I, I'm done. You know, I just fall down into a pile of mush. And everyone's different. Sometimes it takes a lot to crush you. Sometimes it takes a lot for you to say, uncle. And the Lord knows what it is. And for us right now, he doesn't do those things to harm us. He'll chasten us if necessary, the church. But he doesn't do it to destroy us. But at this time, there will be destruction. And yet in his grace, he allows people to come to him. Very difficult, though. It's going to be very difficult. So as we read these things, let's stand together and let's examine our own hearts this morning and say, Lord, I don't want to play games anymore. These things are coming. The signs are around us. I mean, you can see them, can't, can you not? See the signs that are all around us. Jesus spoke of these things, wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences. He said these things are the beginning of birth pangs, the beginning of sorrows. We're starting to see those things in a greater frequency and even a greater, um, it's happening, isn't it? So it's time for us, church, to wake up. It's time for us to wake up. It's time for us to be in prayer. Please join us in prayer on Tuesday nights. We meet in the fellowship hall. There's plenty of room. If there's ever a time that we need to be praying, it is right now. We need to be praying right now. Pray with your families. Pray with the church. Get together. It's only an hour. Can you afford an hour on a Tuesday night? I think we all could. The sun is still shining when we're done. You can go for your walk afterwards. But let's be people of prayer. Let's pray for our own hearts that we don't get discouraged. Let's pray for others that they will come to know Christ. Pray for our families and friends, our coworkers. And pray for the Lord to return soon. Amen? Father, we thank you. Lord, we, we recognize that these are very difficult things that we're reading. But Lord, it is a timely message for us because we do see things ratcheting up. We see the heat being turned up, Lord. The things that we've put confidence in are, 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 are disintegrating before our eyes. Lord, help us to put faith in nothing else but your Son, Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed for our sins. For our sin. And Lord, help us to be ambassadors for you, Lord. Help us to reach out in love. And Lord, never fail to warn people, Lord. It's never easy, Lord. I'd much rather just tell them good news. Lord, I just want to tell them good news, but there's no good news unless you hear the bad news. The good news is because that there's bad news. Help us not to forget the bad news. And then give them the best news ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen.